everyone! Welcome to the first ever episode of Her Story Talk. I'm Melina, your host, and today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite women of all time, Amelia Earhart. Today we also have a very special guest joining us, Deirdre McAllister. Deirdre is a theater artist and professor in the Baltimore area. She actually conceived and directed a piece called Small Breezes in 2018. Small Breezes was a piece about six female explorers in history, one of which who was Amelia Earhart. I actually had the honor of portraying Amelia in this production. So how this is going to work is the first half of this podcast, I will tell Amelia's life story and all of the facts, and the second half, I'll bring Deirdre in and we'll kind of talk about different topics. We'll talk about small breezes, we'll talk about Amelia's life, and we'll talk about her disappearance as well. So without further ado, let's get started. So Amelia was born in 1897 in Atchison, Kansas. Growing up with her grandparents and parents, Amelia always seemed to stand out. I mean, it's kind of clear that she even stood out when she was older, too. You know, maybe it was her short hair, her tomboy behavior, or her clothes, but either way, she always seemed to ignore the rules placed for women during the time. Until she was 12 years old, she lived with her grandparents along with her sister, who was two years younger than her. Her grandfather was a federal judge, while her grandmother was a housewife for most of her life. Her father traveled constantly for work, and the family moved a number of times. In fact, Amelia was always moving during her childhood. She loved school, but she was more interested in books than anything else. She said that once she learned how to read, she spent many hours alone, not bothering anyone at all. She once stated that books meant the world to her. When talking about her childhood in the book, The Fun of It, she recalls being brought up in a time where girls were still just girls. And that's really important when we're talking about her life, not just her childhood, but even up until her death. We have to remember that this is not 2020. Okay, girls were just girls, like Amelia says. She remembered having a vast interest in sports, especially basketball and tennis, but she wasn't allowed instruction or coaching for it because she was a girl. And she couldn't become good enough to do it later on, which she wanted to do, but again, she wasn't allowed coaching or instruction for it. She recalled all of this attention being paid to boys and their sports, but none to girls whatsoever. She even said, usually it is not until girls reach college that any comparative attention is given to them. But Amelia's mother once said that she did not want to raise nice little girls. When Amelia would come home from school, she would often run and jump a fence surrounding her house, which is something her grandmother absolutely hated. And Amelia wrote that after her grandmother made a comment about little girls not doing things like that, she went parading around her house and the gate and jumping it for several days. She described her childhood and even adulthood as extremely unladylike, which she really enjoyed. At the time of her childhood, she had a short haircut, similar to her signature cut that most people know of that she had when she was older. A cut like that was considered natural for a boy, but again, at the time, it was unnatural for a young girl. Even her outfits were considered out of fashion and along the boyish side. The Earhart sisters had the first gym suits in town and wore them often to play in. Amelia stated that they made her feel free and athletic, but she also felt like an outcast. In fact, she often felt like an outcast, and her and her sister weren't society's ideas of normal little girls. Instead of getting dolls for Christmas, they'd usually get footballs or basketballs, and on one occasion, Amelia's sister even got a .22 pop gun. 
One story I love about Amelia is the sighting of her first airplane. And this is going to shock a lot of people, but believe it or not, she actually wasn't that impressed the first time she saw one. It wasn't until she started her career as a nurse that she even considered flying or even piqued her interest. So after graduating high school, she went to Toronto because that's where her sister was. And it was during this time that World War I was occurring. And while Amelia was in the middle of receiving a higher education, she decided to put it on hold. In her book, The Fun of It, she said that at the time, she would have felt really guilty if she went back to school because she would have been completely useless if she was at school and not doing something about it. So she took the steps to become a nurse's aide. And I think a lot of people don't realize that she was actually like an like a nurse for a short while. So she worked in Toronto for a few months and she worked really hard and she even talks about these harsh conditions that she had to work under. Um, so she said that she started her day at seven in the morning and she finished her shift at seven at night. So that's a 12 hour day. And it was during the winter of 1918 that she actually recalled becoming interested in planes. So officers in training were always around as they were trained in the fields around the city of Toronto. So in her spare time when she wasn't working, she would spend all of her time at the training fields. So while she could, she soaked up all of the knowledge that she possibly could. After the war ended, she stopped her career as a nurse's aide and she took a course in automobile engine repair, which she didn't realize would be useful later on. She then decided to go to Columbia University and after graduating, she went to California. On December 28, 1920, in Long Beach, California, Amelia Earhart and her father went to an airfield where they met Frank Hawks, who was an air racer. And Amelia Earhart's father paid Frank $10 to give Amelia a ride in the plane. So Amelia gets in the plane, and she said, By the time I had got two or 300 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. So Amelia's hooked. I mean, she knows that she has to fly now. She's been thinking about it for a while since she's been in Toronto, and now she knows she has to do it. So she takes all of these jobs, and she tries to raise the money, and she raises $1,000 for flying lessons. And this is probably one of my favorite parts about her life story because it combines two great women. These two great women meet. Um, so she goes to this great woman named Netta Snook. She was a female aviator and she actually trained Amelia Earhart. Like everyone knows Amelia Earhart, but they don't know Netta Snook, but now you know who she is. Anyways, in 1921, she trained Amelia and, um, you know, it's funny because she went there. She said, I, I want to fly. Will you teach me? And she takes a bus but she has to walk four miles after her bus reaches the end of the line. So she does that. She, she is willing to walk four miles to get to this place to take flying lessons. She wants to be like other female aviators. So what she does is she takes her hair. It was actually longer at this time. This, she didn't have this short haircut. She only had a short haircut when she was a kid. So she, she cuts all her hair off. She cuts it all off. And she gets a leather jacket, and she tries to make it look worn. She tries to look super cool. And then in 1921, she gets this bright yellow 
Kinner Airster biplane, and she calls it the Canary. And next thing you know, in 1922, a year later, she flew that same airplane to the altitude of 14,000 feet, and she set a world record for female pilots. And then on May 15th, 1923, she became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. So she wasn't the first to do it, but she was one of the first to do it. And I think a lot of people, you know, don't recognize that, you know, she wasn't the first female aviator ever. There were other people who did it. Um, But she did set all of these amazing records. I mean, just think about that. In a year of flying, she already sets a world record for female pilots. I mean, that's awesome. So keep in mind that Amelia is supposed to be at Columbia University going higher with her education. Well, you know, she ends up getting this sinus operation done. She has to get it done more than once, actually. She goes to Boston, and she decides that she wants to abandon her studies and further her plans at Massachusetts Institute of Technology because she couldn't afford the tuition fees at Columbia. She was actually having some financial trouble. She had to sell the canary. She wasn't getting money from her grandparents anymore. So she was going through a bit of a rough patch, but things were about to change for her. Earhart started to become this local celebrity. And there was this other female pilot called Amy Guest. And she had actually expressed interest in being the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean but she decided that it was a little too dangerous for her. So she offered to sponsor the project instead. And they decided, you know, everyone involved in the project, they decided that they needed to go with another girl, another girl. So Amelia got a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Raley. In her book, The Fun of It, she writes that Captain H. Raley said, hello, you don't know me, but my name is Raley, Captain H. H. Raley. And without more introduction, he asked me if I should be interested in doing something for aviation, which might be hazardous. Of course, I asked him more about who he was and why he picked me and what the hazardous undertaking was. The last he wouldn't tell. Finally, after he had furnished excellent references and reasons for calling, I made an appointment to see him at his office that very evening. He asked her if she wanted to fly the Atlantic, and she said, yes. Many think that she actually flew the plane, but here's the thing. She wasn't the pilot. She actually was on a team with two other men, uh, pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot mechanic Lewis Gordon, and she was a passenger, and she had the duty of keeping the flight log. She actually wrote a whole book about it um, called 20 Hours and 40 Minutes. Their flight was actually 20 hours and 40 minutes. So they departed from Trapassi Harbor in Newfoundland on June 17th, 1928, and they landed near Bury Port in South Wales 20 hours and 40 minutes later. When interviewed after the landing, she actually said, Stoltz did all the flying, had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. Maybe someday I'll try it alone. 
In her book, The Fun of It, she said Bill Stoltz received $20,000 and Lou Gordon received $5,000. She said, My own compensation, which I had never really seriously considered, was, in addition to the fun of the exploit itself, the opportunities in aviation, writing, and the like which the Atlantic crossing opened up for me. After this is when Amelia Earhart really became a celebrity and she started to really blow up. And there's a lot that happened from this point on until her death that a lot of people don't know of that I want to talk about. And one thing that no one knows about that I think is so cool is that she actually designed her own clothing line. Her clothing line was like this comfort clothing line for women. And it had like a lot of things to do with pants. What, is she going to get in an airplane wearing a dress? <laughs> no. She was a fashion designer. She also wrote for Cosmopolitan, which is really nice because she wrote to people who had questions about her. A lot of people don't know this, but she actually loved to write. I mean, that's probably why she has three books, but she was also a poet. So let's talk Amelia's love life. She was originally engaged to Samuel Chapman, who was a chemical engineer from Boston, but she broke off the engagement on November 23rd, 1928. But during this same time, publisher George Putnam, who had published a book for her, was divorcing as well from his wife. He actually proposed to her six times, six times before she finally agreed to marry him. Now, I want to read you the letter that she wrote to him on their wedding day. There are some things which should be writ before we are married, things we have talked over before, most of them. You must know again my reluctance to marry, my feeling that I shatter there by chances and work, which means most to me. I feel the move just now as foolish as anything I could do. I know there may be compensations, but have no heart to look ahead. On our life together, I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. If we can be honest, I think the difficulties which arise may be best avoided should you or I become interested deeply, or in passing, in anyone else. Please let us not interfere with the other's work or play, nor let the world see our private joys or disagreements. In this connection, I may have to keep some place where I can go to be myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinements of even an attractive cage. I must exact a cruel promise, and that is you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. I will try to do my best in every way and give you that part of me you know and seem to want. A.E. She also didn't want to take his last name. She did not want to be Amelia Putnam. She actually wrote to the New York Times telling them to stop calling her Mrs. Putnam because she was Amelia Earhart. Let me read you the letter. Despite the mild expression of my wishes and those of GPP, I am constantly referred to as Mrs. Putnam when the Times mentions me in its columns. I admit I have no principles to uphold in asking that I be called by my professional name in print. However, it is for many reasons more convenient for both of us to be simply Amelia Earhart. So let's get back to talking about Amelia's accomplishments in flying. So in 1932, she became the first woman and the only person since Charles Lindbergh, another aviator, to fly nonstop and alone, this time, across the Atlantic. So this happened from May 20th 
to May 21st, 1932. She flew a red Lockheed Vega and left from Harbor Grace, Canada, and landed 15 hours later near Londonderry, Northern Ireland. She made the first solo non-stop flight by a woman across the United States. She started in Los Angeles and she went all the way to Newark, New Jersey, and she did it in 19 hours. She also started to do competitive air racing in 1929. And in 1931, she set a world altitude record of 18,415 feet. And what's so important about her being a bit of a daredevil by doing all of this air racing and this these tricks and doing competitive flying is that she was proving that it wasn't just men being daredevils. Women could do it too. In 1935, she became the first aviator to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California. She then flew solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City on April 19th of the same year. Then she was like, I'm going to break another record, or at least try to. So she wanted to do a nonstop flight from Mexico City to New York City. So she took off on May 8th, but her flight didn't go as planned. Between 1930 and 1935, she had set seven women's speed and distance aviation records. In 1936, she started to plan a round-the-world flight. So others had flown around the world before. This wouldn't be a record of the first person to fly around the world, but hers would be the longest because she would be doing it around the equator. So her flight would be 29,000 miles. In 1936, a plane was built for her. This plane is special. It's a Lockheed Electra 10E. It was modified to be able to hold a lot of gas so that she didn't have to make a lot of stops. I mean, she still had to stop a lot, but like, you know. So, on March 17th, 1937, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan flew the first part of their journey from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. There was a problem, and basically they had to call off their trip completely. They had to get their plane fixed and they had to try again. And here's what we know about the last time we saw Amelia Earhart ever. The plane was fixed. They knew that the journey would take around 40 days to complete, but probably a little longer. It was going to start and end in California, and there was going to be around 20 stops. Now, the plane could carry over 1,000 pounds of fuel instead of the normal 200, because again, they manipulated this plane. They built this plane specifically for this journey. So they started their journey on May 21st, 1937. 42 days into their journey on July 2nd, they prepared to leave Laia, New Guinea, loaded with the most amount of fuel possible, 1,000 pounds of fuel. They were 22,000 miles into the trip, meaning they only had 7,000 more miles to go before reaching California, but they planned to stop 2,500 miles away on Howland Island to refuel. This was an 18-hour flight. Now, 
This man named Harry was a radio operator, and he was meant to send transmissions to Earhart and Noonan every hour to check in on them. The headwinds were strong. They were very strong. Weather is unpredictable. And I don't think Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan knew how bad the weather was going to be. They left, and Harry sent three transmissions to Amelia and Fred in the span of two hours without hearing anything from them. Probably because wind can affect transmissions. But here's the thing. Wind can also affect fuel and speed, which can be disastrous. She finally reached Harry and gave her speed of 140 knots, and she was at an altitude of 7,000 feet. An hour later, she sent another transmission stating she went to 10,000 feet, either to avoid clouds or who knows why. But this probably wasted more fuel. There was a boat off the coast of Howland Island that was supposed to provide communication to Earhart. They heard her transmissions, which meant that she and Fred Noonan were close to the island. In one of her last transmissions, she said, We must be on you, but we cannot see you. She then said, Gas is running low, which is one of the key factors here. Gas is running low. Her last transmission sent was, We are on the line 157-337, which are coordinates. We will repeat message. We will repeat this on 6,210 kilocycles. Wait. Her and Fred Noonan were never heard from again. The plane never arrived, and the ship searched the waters around the island. An aircraft carrier even searched the region until July 18th. But Amelia, Fred Noonan, and the plane were never found. And now we interrupt this program to bring you some one-minute her story on the one, the only, Sarla Thackrell. Many know of Amelia Earhart, but do you know about Sarla Thackrell? Married at the age of 16, her husband was India's first airmail pilot. As a matter of fact, his entire family were all pilots as well. Her father-in-law enrolled her in a local flying school, and after only eight hours of training, her instructor let her fly solo. She then underwent 1,000 hours of intensive training and successfully earned her A license, becoming the first Indian woman to ever do so. She was only 21 years old. She wanted to train for her commercial pilot's license, hoping to make a career in aviation, but due to World War II, all flying was suspended. She enrolled herself in an art school where she received a diploma in the fine arts. She then became a businesswoman who designed and sold costume jewelry and became very successful. Before she died at the age of 94, she said, Always be happy. It is very important for us to be happy and cheerful. This one motto has seen me tied over the crises in my life. And now, back to the program. Okay, so joining me now is Deirdre McAllister. Deirdre is amazing. She is a Baltimore creative, and she is also a professor at Towson University and Stevenson University. I actually had her myself, and uh, she also directed me in this amazing show called Small Breezes, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to invite her to talk today. And Deirdre, if you don't mind telling everyone, what is Small Breezes? Well, Small Breezes was a devised performance that occurred at Stevenson University that you were in <laughs> back yes. in, was it 2017? I think so. 2018. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I was approached by 
um, you know, the, the head of the drama department at Stevenson to create a show that sort of the, the theme of the year was history. So uh, women's history and just highlighting women, um, women's writing and things like that. And I couldn't, like, I fell in love with a couple plays, but I was like, these women's stories are so cool. And Stevenson's really open to, um, their program's really open to sort of new development and new ways of collaboratively working. So we decided to do a device play which just means that the actors sort of have a say in what goes into the play. So it doesn't exist before all the actors come together and through a lot of different like writing exercises and a lot of research, we sort of concocted this play about these six um, women that really, I love their stories, but I got, um, you know, I presented a, a list of women for all of the actors that were cast to sort of just peruse. And then you guys actually chose, right? You guys chose, which one you felt like a special kind of connection with. And I had ideas in my head. I, I always kind of thought of you as Amelia Earhart. <laughs> I, like just your personality and your attitude and you kind of look like her. I don't know. Really? Like, huh. I thought so. So I was like, oh, you know, that would make a perfect Amelia Earhart. And she was one of the characters. Um, and then we sort of drew out this story, um, you know, and it was part realism and part kind of fantasy, because obviously Amelia Earhart did not meet Alexander David Neal or Mae Jemison, but we sort of imagined these different situations. Um, we had real life, real scenes that actually happened to these women. And then we also sort of concocted, we stepped outside of realism a little bit. And yeah, we definitely sort did. Of, <laughs> yeah, we had like a dream. We had a lot of, there was a lot of poetry. There was a lot of movement and stuff like that. So. That's what Small Breezes was. And it was an amazing, beautiful, special show. It was in a really small black box theater and everybody who got to experience that live performance, you know, um, it moved a lot of people. And um, I was so happy with the end result and working with you amazing actresses. I will say it was probably my favorite show of all time. Oh, yeah. I'm not gonna it was, lie. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of work though. Mm -hmm. I was just looking through our Google Drive in preparation of um, of this conversation. And I was like, wow, because we had a research folder, a newspaper article folder, a poetry folder, a video clips, like just so much work went into the research and the development of it. It was so cool. Yeah, and even like, I, I know for me, like Amelia wrote three books. Yes. So I remember reading three books. It was just so much work and it was like the first time that I had ever done a devised piece of theater and I had no idea what to expect. Sure. But you know, I loved history so it was kind of like really fun for me to just sit down and like do hours of research and then be able to like bring someone who was real back to life. Uh-huh. Like that was just so cool, you know? Yep. Know. And like you really get a sense of who this person is when you do, do such a deep dive. But then when you also, when you're portraying someone to have that like level of love and respect for them, like you're, you're creating this impression of them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that's different than just historical research. That's like with the intention of having to perform this person, you know, for you, I think, you sort of naturally got into that. A lot of people, like devised work is hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's really hard and it's daunting. And for a director to not know like, oh, are we gonna like have a show until like a week or two beforehand? 
is is not for everybody you know but you really you took to it like I look at all the folders and files and you just have so much that you were working off of and it wasn't just her you know her books it was like other biographers these newspaper articles other people that have met her telling stories about her all these conspiracy theories I mean craziness and also her poetry Mm -hmm. because she was she had such a beautiful mind and a beautiful soul and a way of looking at things like she talks about flying and you see this like woman in these leather boots and like being all cool and stuff and tough as nails you know but then she talks about the stars and just doing it to experience beauty and like find beauty and you know small breezes is actually the title is actually a line in one of her poems and i just love that she was all of those things you know she was yeah and she was also like really really sensitive and you get that impression when you do that level of research you know (laughs) yeah it was definitely like something i never expected at all like she was someone i i just never expected her to be funny i never expected her to be like sensitive Mm -hmm. and she was just so much more than like someone who went missing, which mm-hmm. I wish people would realize. Like she was a fashion designer, which I actually didn't even realize when I was doing research for Small Breezes. That was something I found out recently. And I was like, wait, she, she did a whole clothing line. Like yeah. and no one, no one ever talks about that. Like for she active did it women. All. <laughs> yeah. For active women. Like, yeah. and you know, just encouraging women to go and have adventure just for adventure sake you know um and it's like people will be like how do you do it how do you do it like and she's like well I just I I do it (laughs) and to have that attitude that early um you know during you know that time in history when it really was about like making home and and taking care of men and sending them to war and you know she and she was an activist and an advocate too she was all of those Mm -hmm. things and unapologetic about it um was, you know, she just, how could you not fall in love with her? I guess that kind of takes us into, like, the second question of, you know, why why did you choose her? Like, are those sure. some of the reasons that you chose her? Or, like, did you just stumble across her books one day and decide, like... I've always, there's always an allure around her. I mean, because of, we don't know what happened to her, there's, like, a mystery, right? And, like, we want to respect her as this, like, hero, but then people are kind of obsessed about, like, oh, well, all, all of these different theories, like she's in Japan or like whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think like that, the mystery to me, I wanted to sort of not focus on that. I just wanted to sort of focus on like her life and like her accomplishments and like the beauty of her soul and and be able to like sort of present that in as a not alternative, you know, because people, the millions of people have written about her, portrayed her um, and stuff. But she was the first person when I thought of um, making a play about women, um, about a group of women and devising a play about it. She was kind of just one of the first persons I really thought of. Um, just for her spirit, her energy, and she really did sort of, break, you know, break down a lot of barriers and a lot of stereotypes and a lot of expectations that women would have had back then. So yeah, I was just really attracted to sort of doing that and then working against this, let's just like have a bunch of conspiracy theories. You know what I mean? Not that I think like it's disrespectful, but it's, it's because, you know, obviously it's kind of natural to ponder these things like, but also look at her life, you know what I mean? Don't just look at her 
her death or her disappearance. Like, look at her life, too. Um, but she was just cool. Yeah, she was so cool. She was such a cool person. I know. <laughs> she really was. Yeah, she was. She was neat. Well, now I'm going to ask, what is your favorite Amelia Earhart story? I love that she de- designed for, like, the active women. Um, you know, I loved her. I loved everything about her, really. Can't pinpoint one. Can it sort of be something she said? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I kind of, I love what she says about, um, about failure. How, like, women, you know, she just looks at failure as not this, like, crippling thing that might happen to somebody or ruin a career. It's like, she looks at that as an opportunity, which I think is really cool. I think she said at one point, like, failure is a call for other women to try try things to just do things and try them and if you fail like whatever just do it for the adventure you know um and 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 I think that's that's what I love and then I loved I just love all of her responses to the goofy questions people would ask her you know like the whole how do you do it you're a girl blah 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 just dryly answering like well I just do it (laughs) (laughs) I do know that one time she you know wrote the New York Times and was like, stop calling me Mrs. Putnam. Yes. That's okay, one yes. of my favorite Amelia That stories. is a really good one, yeah. And uh, like, what a trailblazer, you know? I know. Not, I mean, even like, I'm not going to lie, I got some side eye and shade when I did not take my husband's name. And I, you know, when I got married and people would say, well, why aren't you changing your name? And I would just say, well, I already have a name. I already have a last name. Yeah. You know? like, this is a really antiquated thing in my opinion, that, that people do and whatever they want to do is their choice. But, um, but I do love how Amelia, you know, they kept referring to her as Mrs. Putnam and she wrote in and just said, Nope, I'm Amelia Earhart. Um, stop calling me that. Yeah. And you know, I just, I love that her husband really was someone that encouraged her and they had such a loving relationship. He was her publisher and he just supported her and what a good model for a relationship. Yeah. I also um, find it interesting that she, like, on their wedding day, I don't know if you ever saw the letter, but on their wedding day, she wrote to him, and she was like, look, we can have an open relationship. Like, you're not tied down to me. I'm not tied down to you. And yeah. if this doesn't work in, like, a year, we can call it off, and that's okay. And, like, yeah, you know, for back then, that was, I mean, even now, like, people don't really look at open relationships as like that acceptable but it is more widely accepted than it was back then but back then like that was people were like what what the hell yeah or it would be very very secretive like it would be Mm -hmm. an arrangement that like you Mm -hmm. would never really admit to or whatever and she was just really open and I love too like that's a testament to the whole like her herself as a present woman like she was always like I you know she just sees something and she does it she was a nurse she thought flying would be fun as a hobby so she did it you know she wanted mm-hmm. she had ideas in her head she wrote them down and called herself a poet you know what I mean and that's and that's that and I love that and it was like she definitely just took it day by day if I don't feel like doing something I'm not going to do it and if I do feel like doing something I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it well you know what I mean Um, and just her attitude of life, just being present and not really thinking about other people's expectations of her, society's expectations of her, um, you know, you know, and that was just a rare way to be, but a beautiful way to be and the sense of adventure. That's what I really think like Small Breezes was trying to capture like that. 
feeling that urge to go and like do something more with yourself, mm-hmm. you know, um, as a woman throughout time. And we represented women through a lot of all the way up to Sylvia Earle and Mae Jemison, who are still living today, one of the, you know, the astronaut and a deep sea explorer, yeah. who just the urge to go and not be limited by by society and not be limited by gravity or you know anything really um and it's so important to just connect with and celebrate these women in our history yes yes it is (laughs) oh my gosh I love this this is so empowering I just want to like I don't know go out and like fly a plane I don't know how to do it but like who cares I'm gonna live like you know, she was she's my last. It's she fine. was completely, completely fearless. So. Yes, she was. Okay, so we don't have to focus on it too much, but we actually never, I don't think we ever had a conversation about what we thought happened to sure. Amelia because it wasn't really important to Small Breezes whatsoever because it wasn't about her death and it wasn't about any of their deaths. Yeah. But what do you personally think happened? Because I don't think sure. I ever found out what you thought yeah I mean yeah we didn't we really didn't focus on it that much because we were kind of focusing on that impulse that that feeling of wanting to go and adventure even though it seems so impossible like a a Victorian woman like Alexander David a Victorian woman wanting to go travel in the desert (laughs) like someone a, a girl you know growing up during the civil rights movement Mae Jemison just hearing all of the horrors outside, dreaming of going to outer space, you know? So we, we focused on that impulse and that happened very early in all of these women's lives. I won't even say careers, in their lives, right? They were adventure ladies, they were tomboys, they were whatever. Um, so I think just the nature of wanting to capture that made it so that our portrayal was like younger. But she did disappear. And so that was a big part of it. And that's a part of her life. And that's a part of her legacy and a part of her history. For me, I, I, I think she, I think she probably died. I think she probably didn't make it. I mean, the plane, you know, many people have, have tried it before and died. And so to me, I, I think she, I think she probably passed away in the ocean. And that's really sad. And that really sucks. And that's like a, not an epic ending, but I think, conspiracy theories are really funny i think they're kind of like coping mechanisms they're like what a beautiful bright star you know relatively young she was still in her 30s like 39 i think when she yeah died, she was almost 40 disappeared. um and i think we we don't want to believe that that's the way she went because that's not the way she lived and you know whatever but she was a woman that accepted failure she was a woman that that fought despite and like she went in fearless and so she wouldn't have been afraid you know Mm -hmm. and so people refuse to sort of accept that and i think that's why we have a lot of conspiracy theories like we refuse to accept certain levels of cruelty in the world you know you look at um 9-11 and like certain events that happen and people just they don't want to accept that we don't right. want to accept certain things. And so they come up with other narratives. We're very creative people. They yes, come up with are. other narratives to do it. But I think um, whatever happened to her, the most respectful thing to do is to celebrate her, you know? Right. I mean, there's literally, there's nothing wrong with her story ending that way. Like, sure. I, I personally think she 
like all of the signs, in my opinion, you know, sure. I'm no, I'm no scientist, right? <laughs> but in my personal opinion, from the research I've done, she, it looks like her and Fred Noonan ran out of gas, and I think that they crashed in the ocean yep. and drowned. And yep. if we had the money to the research and look at the bottom of the ocean, I think that they would be there. It's and a whole lot of ocean. It, there's a whole lot. <laughs> yes. As Sylvia Earle, like. Yes. There's a whole lot of ocean. Know, there's a whole lot of ocean. Exactly. Um, I really think that she would be at the bottom there. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, right. I would love, I would love, I would be tickled at the idea of somebody who rescued her and she, you know, went to an island and just like had fun and whatever, but it's just, it's, it's pretty far-fetched and unlikely from like the area that they do know where she was, um, that that happened. So, you know, well, there's one theory that she was a spy yes. and what is so funny to me, it, and it's not funny, but like you've seen Amelia on tape, right? And like her yes. interviews, and she's the most awkward human being oh ever. My God, like yeah. she can't, she can't talk. She can't be in front of like cameras. Like she's very like awkward. Like I don't yeah. think she could. Homegirl couldn't be a spy. Like she just. I, yeah, I don't think so. She couldn't, and it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. I just don't. Right. But people want to. People want to she... dream. People want to dream, and, you know, another element to that, too, is, like, they, she's on that level, and I think, you know, it's, like, more time goes by, the more conspiracies come out, because now she's on this mythic level, like, she's mythology, she's a queen, a god, she's amazing, and, like, people love her and celebrate her so much, but she was human, she wasn't a god, she was not you know, she was a human being and humans, guess what? They die. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, she even said to, I think she either wrote or said to her husband yeah. before she went on this trip, I don't have the exact quote because I didn't bring it up before I did this meeting, but she said like, if it was her time, it was her time and that was okay. Yeah. She like she like knew the risk. Comfortable with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She knew the risk 100%. Yeah. She knew it. It was very like risky she knew that fred noonan knew that i mean you're going all the way around the world over the course of over 40 days Mm. in a plane weather is always going to be difficult you never know what's going to happen like it that's just life yeah but i think you know people people just don't want that to be the end of her story but it's not the end of her story is it because there are always gals that are going to get inspired by it and put on crazy plays about it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you for letting me, letting me talk about it. I love talking about Amelia Earhart. I love talking about important women in history and I love talking about theater. So this sort of combines yes. <laughs> all of my loves and, um, you know, I, I think I, you know, do a piece that is historical because I've done a couple um, and it is talking about something that really happened just I get more inspired and I take a little bit from each of those women and from each of, um, you know, from each piece that I do, you know, and I think Small Breezes taught me a lot and taught me a lot and Amelia Earhart taught me a lot about, you know, living each day and just going for adventures and just going for it. And I really love that. And I hope you experience that too. 
A huge thank you to Deirdre McAllister for joining me today, and a thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode. If you haven't already, check out Her Story Talk on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok for updates on the podcast and more Her Story content. And remember, it's not just history, it's hers too. Have a good one!